Hello, I'm Jean-Philippe Courtois, and this is Positive Leadership, the podcast that helps you grow as an individual, a leader, and ultimately as a global citizen. My guest today, Rita Roy, is president and CEO of the MasterCard Foundation. With $40 billion in assets, the MasterCard Foundation is one of the largest private foundations in the world. Under Rita's leadership, it has focused its work in Africa to advance education and financial inclusion. His programs have improved the lives of more than 38 million people, which is pretty incredible. Rita herself is known for a bold approach to development and her values-led leadership, which begins with humility, kindness, and respect. People follow a leader or they follow a mission because they believe in it. They believe and it resonates with something in their core and their passion. And so part of leading is also creating space for others and to recognize that the work we do is daunting. It's challenging work. And uh, it is not the work of one person or even two. It is the work of many. And so part of the joy, the challenge, sometimes the difficulty or even frustration of leading is creating the space. It is navigating the journey, but recognizing everybody plays a role in contributing to this. Rita has so much leadership wisdom to share in this episode about how to create a workplace that's stimulating, that's human, as much as it's focused and relentless on impact, and how to reimagine philanthropy for the 21st century. She's developed some unique skills and techniques along the way, and I was really keen to find out what lessons you and I could learn from her experience as a change maker. I also wanted to know more about her as a person, about the formative moments that have shaped her, and what drives her to keep working towards achieving such big goals. So Rita, I think it would be fair to say you don't fit the traditional model of what many people assume is a foundation president. You don't come from a world of prestige and power, first of all. <laughs> Instead, you trace your roots to your humble beginnings in Malaysia, a country defined by its ethnic and religious diversity. Your father's family was Hindu, while your mother's was Buddhist. You attended a Catholic school. You had friends from all backgrounds and celebrated every religious holiday. You've been exposed to such great diversity of thoughts and practices, inherited from your parents and family. And you told me the other day that in a way you feel that you are presenting a double minority by yourself. So given that complex multiracial religious background, what have been the core principles and beliefs that stick with you, Rita, and that have shaped who you are today? Well, one thing I would say is that, uh, you know, we are made up of multiple parts and there are so many facets of our lives. Mm -hmm. And I owe so much to my parents because of the cultures, the faith, the ways of life, the ways of knowing that they brought with them, which I, I hope will always be part of me. But one of the biggest lessons which I take from my parents is that they grew up in a tumultuous time in the world. And yet, they had courage to dream and to imagine a life that was different for themselves. 
So I think about principles of courage, of adventure, of curiosity. I, I would say the other big lesson is that while we are made up of many parts, mm. it is so important in a world as we live today that is complex and sometimes divided to see people as they are, mm. to see the whole person and to look beyond what you see, to look inside and to understand who they are and, and to understand their stories. And uh, I, I would say that's one of the things that has characterized how I work and how I love to learn mm. about people and what makes them who they are. Let me continue a little bit on family background and, and life in a way. I know also that tragedy struck your family when your father passed away, unexpectedly when you were, I think, just 14 years old. Your mom sacrificed everything she could by remortgaging your family house so that you could have an opportunity overseas actually to study in the U.S., And you were awarded scholarships from the age of 16, right through your higher education. So can you tell us more about that experience for you? Because it must have been life-changing in many ways. It was life-changing. My mother is someone I owe everything to. I'd like to think that my first scholarship was my mother's scholarship. Hmm. And it was more than a scholarship. It was also a gift to a new life yeah. and to have courage to seize that opportunity. In, in many ways, those beginnings were daunting. And perhaps as a kid, you're shielded somewhat from the full implications of the full impact of, because of your understanding of what is happening. But as an adult, I look back and I think about the good fortune of coming to the U.S. to live mm. in homes of people who were strangers but who um, had me as their guests for my last two years of high school. Yeah. I think of the mentors who came into my life, certainly when I was going through my education, both undergraduate and then in higher education, and then when I started my work life. And mm. so, Jean-Philippe, I think that so yeah. many ways our lives are shaped by yeah. the people who come into our life, yeah, who teach yeah. us, who create yeah. opportunities for us. Be building on that, actually, uh, Rita, you know, on that podcast a couple of months ago, I had... Uh, Uh, a guest uh, with Bozoma St. John. And she's someone who grew up in Ghana, in Kenya, so in Africa. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll talk about Africa later, a bit later together. Before moving, moving to the U.S. Uh, as a young girl, so actually even younger than yourself. And she shared with me how challenging it was having to pick up the cultural cues to enable her to acclimate to a new environment. But also, you know, she said that it helped her actually to get comfortable in her fear of new experiences, new people, a new culture overall, and to get the confidence that you can actually get friends anywhere. So being away from home yourself, did you find it scary in the first place or did it give you actually a sense of confidence and empowerment over time? I think it was all of those things all at once. Hmm. <laughs> and your former guest has, uh, is very perceptive. I think those are formative moments in terms of uh, making friends Uh, feeling a sense of belonging, uh, hopefulness, uh, encountering, you know, what today we would call uh, biases or discrimination. But perhaps yeah. at that time, I didn't have a word for it. I learned early on, for example, when I first started at high school in the U.S., yeah. uh, and there weren't, people weren't very necessarily um, used to seeing someone who looks like, looked like me, yeah. and would ask right away, do you speak English? <laughs> and I would say, yes. 
do you? Because I was c- confused why they were asking me <laughs> that question, you know. Yes. Um, but but they were, and then I realized it was just about they they were encountering yeah. something new themselves. Very new, yes. For for them, and part of my job, and I think mm. about this job with a small J, was to make them feel at ease mm. and comfortable, and to con- mm. and find ways to connect on things which are intrinsically human. Mm. And that continues mm. today. One of the things that makes Rita so successful as a leader is her ability to bring different people together. She's great at doing that because she's deeply empathetic. Empathy is a difficult quality to develop, and it's even more difficult to put it into practice. It entails putting yourself in another person's shoes, listening very deeply and responding to them. You create far better communication channels when you're able to empathize with other people. In our global role, Rita has had lots of opportunity to master those skills, but it's fascinating to discover that it's something she started working on in her teens. So let's continue a bit after graduating from school. You've been studying international affairs, I think, at Tufts University. And you began your career at the United Nations, wonderful global institutions, which I think have been an ambition of yours since you were a child, I believe. So given mm-hmm. that ambition, may I ask you why you did not stay that long in the UN? <laughs> and do you believe, I extend my question, do you believe in the transformative power of such global institutions to achieve some of the most challenging goals of all times for the people and the planet? When I was nine years old, someone told me about the United Nations and it seemed like an amazing concept to me as mm. a kid that yeah. they could be so many people all over the world in one place working to do something good in the world. And it was, it's almost seemed magical. And yeah. when I was at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, mm. the whole work was around, focus was around international affairs. And so the UN as a multilateral institution was a principal agency. Yeah. And yes, I did have big dreams. Now, when I joined uh, the United mm. Nations, it was on a series of short-term contracts for that mm. period of two years. Yeah. Um, I didn't stay long, not because I did not believe in the institution, mm. but mm. rather because there wasn't an opportunity uh, to continue on mm. uh, as, a, as a long-term civil servant. I do believe in mm. the power of organizations like the UN Uh, to be a force for solving problems, resolving conflict, enabling a different kind of conversation, a different type of negotiation for justice, for equity. Mm. But I also think there are roles for many other actors uh, to to move us in that right direction. No, I fully understand. So so, so let's continue that that discussion beyond the UN, obviously, because after a couple of years, you took a very different path and you move into the, the big corporate world, uh, joining the big farmers. At the time, I think you moved to Bristol Myers Squibb, one of the world's biggest healthcare companies, to work on strategies addressing difficult social problems such as South African apartheid and AIDS as well. And, as you, and you shaped the global citizenship and policies function, I think, which was not existing at the time, if I'm not mistaken, in that company. You didn't really have the right experience for the role at the time, but you impressed one person, Margaret Marushak. You impressed her enough that she was willing to, to gamble on you. So what did Margaret see in you back then, do you think? 
But he may have Gosh, shown you I, <laughs> that ladder to make that leap of face. <laughs> I, I wish we can call Margaret. Uh, she's actually in New York, and, and I just saw her last week. And Margaret is a lifelong mentor to me. Yes. I'd like to think that she saw somebody who was eager, who was mm. willing to learn, willing to work hard, who was curious. I'd like to think that she took a chance on me because someone yeah. took a chance on her when she Bonera. was starting out. Mm. Uh, and that Margaret is someone who thinks about paying it forward, about creating <laughs> opportunities for others who come after her. And mm. so for that, I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful. I'd like to say one other thing, that Margaret yep. was her style of leadership in a large multinational, which was my first experience yes. working for a large corporation like that, was someone who was authentic, mm. someone who brought humor into the workplace, who brought a level of levity as well as seriousness, mm. who was intensely always grounded and who taught me the power of listening. Mm. You mentioned a moment ago that many of those companies, and certainly Bristol-Myers Squibb, and then later on Abbott Labs, where I started up the policy and citizenship function, were facing many challenges. But one of the things she, and we had to work with organizations which were critical mm. of both companies, organizations which were really pushing for greater access to, whether it was for medicine, intellectual property, access for people who were vulnerable. Mm. And one of the biggest lessons for me, and I'm, as someone who doesn't like confrontation, <laughs> was going yeah. into those rooms and just listening yeah. and understanding and moving the discussion from, you know, an us versus them hmm. to how do we solve these problems hmm. and what are our roles from where we stand and, and the seats we are sitting in this moment to make those changes. Those were powerful things. Hmm. And, uh, and that's why I believe listening deeply, understanding are critical to move any problem forward. I'm so much with you on that line of thought, uh, Rita, and I've learned myself or to speak much less and listen mm -hmm. a lot more <laughs> mm -hmm. in my own uh, development and my own coaching capability I've acquired over the many years. And I think it's so powerful to have this capacity of presence and deep listening at the same time for the people to, so that they can bring their very best, actually. Yes. So one thing I'm, I'm always interested when I speak to to leaders, uh, Rita, is their sense of purpose. I know this word is being used a lot over the last few years <laughs> in many different contexts. And many dialogues also, of course, on purpose, as you can imagine on my Passive Leadership podcast. One of the, one of the dialogues I had was with uh, Akhtar Bacha. I don't know if you know Akhtar Bacha. He, he has worked on a number of wonderful philanthropic initiatives, working for Microsoft many years back mm -hmm. as well. And he's been the author of this uh, beautiful book called The Purpose Mindset. And he talks about purpose as being the why for you as an individual or as an organization, the two dimensions. Why is your work helping people and making their lives better? So I'm curious to know how you think about purpose and how you articulate your own purpose. Mm -hmm. Is that something that has also changed for you over the years? You know, I think coming to understand my own purpose has been a journey. It's an evolution that is marked by certainly experiences, 
people learning, overcoming adversity. And if I were to answer today, what is that purpose? Mm. For me, that purpose is intrinsically about doing good, creating opportunity for others. It's not necessarily changing their lives, but enabling them to change their own lives. Mm. And it's about moving obstacles out of the way. It's about leveling playing fields so there's mm. equal opportunity. That's how I see my purpose today. Love that. So one of the things that is vital as we go through life, I, I, I found myself, Rita, is having a good support network. Mm -hmm. Recently, I spoke to uh, Doug Conant, former president and CEO of the Campbell Soup Company. And he spoke incredibly powerfully about the importance of having people in your life who will offer unconditional support, who will say, I'm here, or can I help? <laughs> you got married young, I understand, fresh out of college to uh, Jeep Meldon, and he was a great support to you and was by your side through every major milestone in your professional development. You've written beautifully about the joy and pleasure of your marriage and partnership. And of course, the daunting part of the journey as you approach the end of his life from uh, stomach cancer. His death, I know, is a profound loss. And I'd like to talk to you about that advice about marriage and leadership about how you achieve actually balance in our life, or can we achieve that? Which are often more messy than orderly for most of us. And how important you think is it for aspiring leaders to support themselves with people who will champion and bolster, but also provide a balanced perspective? What, what I would say is, um, first of all, I was enormously blessed mm. to have met Jim when I did, and that we were together for 31 years which is also extraordinary. And early on, a very wise person said to me, marriage is a perfect place to begin the journey of leadership. And at <laughs> first I thought, what a bizarre statement. <laughs> and then I started to understand, mm. this is about not just loving and loving in an unconditional way, but it teaches about teamwork negotiation on some days, understanding, compromise, the give and take. And certainly there was a lot of that in our partnership. So I would say to any person starting out in your life, your marriage, yeah. your serious yes. relationship, whether you're married or not, yeah. Yeah. that this too is a journey. And mm. the beauty of that journey is growing up together and becoming even more interesting people as you carry on. Hmm. And balance. Sometimes I feel like balance is a, a mythical word and you wonder mm. if it is ever possible. Yeah. Or whether it's not balance in a single day or a single week or a year, but balance in aggregate when you hmm. look back over a period of time. Yeah. Because there are parts of a, a marriage where one person sacrifices more to enable someone else's career to mm. move forward. And in another season, it's the other way around. And the same mm. is true in life, whether you're married or not, that we give of ourselves to our work, to our purpose. And then there are moments where we take time to reflect and support others who are mm. pushing ahead. 
It is very powerful. What Rita says there about how her marriage prepared her for shared leadership. And it's something that rings true for me as well. All too frequently, we try to find a balance between conflicting demands in our life by dividing our personal and professional responsibilities into separate compartments. But all of us exist in a variety of contexts. And when we try to keep our professional and personal lives separate by building walls between the two, we run the risk of becoming lost in a labyrinth that we have constructed just for ourselves. In some ways, asking anyone to draw a strict boundaries around professional and personal time is not just short-sighted. I think it's also unfair. We must always remain whole. We must yes. always remain whole. Each one of us through our lives in their entirety go through some ups, downs, sometimes some huge moments of joy and excitement and, and sometimes some tragedies as well. And, and in those moments, this is what Bill George say, one of my guests in, in my previous episode of, of Positive Leadership, he called those moments the crucibles of our life. It was as I, you know, journeyed with my husband in his last year of life. Uh, and we had many conversations about what his life had meant and what our lives had meant together. Uh, and within a year, I lost my mom as well. Uh, and so you think, and sometimes you think when you, are, when you face grief that you will never recover. Yeah. And of course, perhaps a small part of you has lost something so deep you can't put words to. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I like to think about for those for people who have faced or are facing something similar, as as daunting and as frightening as this is. When I look back now, it's been a few years. I hold on to a few critical conversations. Mm. I know that that love, which was unconditional, mm. lives inside of me. And I need to find ways to give it expression. Mm. Expression in friendships, expression in the love and passion I have for the work and our mission. In small ways, in how you, you take a moment when you see somebody who's struggling with something. And, and maybe the only thing you can do is smile yeah. The only thing you can do is say hello, or even better, the only thing you can do if they trust you and mm. they share mm. is to listen. Yeah. And so I, I think of crucible moments as moments then which infuse, at least for me, yes. has infused my life in so mm. many other ways, yeah, of how of basically not just how we lead or how I lead, but how I live. Wonderful. I mean, sharing, obviously, that uh, philosophy in life, Rita. And, and the way, I think what I love the most is the way you apply that unconditional love in legacy of those moments to your day-to-day mission with MasterCard Foundation. Everything you do outside of MasterCard Foundation as well, I'm sure. It seems to be the legacy that, that you bring every single day in life. And I can relate to that as well. And I think it's so, it's so uh, I mean, it's so critical uh, to have that at the core of where we are, to to guide our well, to guide our, our, our decisions, and where do we want to to spend most of your time, interest in our lives for the future? Yes. 
So let's come back to 2008. Mm -hmm. You became president of MasterCard Foundation. Two years after, I think it was launched and headquartered in Toronto, Canada. So can you tell us the story of the inception of the MasterCard Foundation? So in 2006, MasterCard, the company, became a publicly listed company. And as part of its IPO, it took 10% of that IPO, the wealth of that IPO, (laughs) and endowed a foundation. What a wonderful practice. I don't know if there's any similar example, Rita, of IPOs where 10% was put away to create a foundation. I'm not aware of that. And that's why I always think hats off to the board of the company, to its leadership and its vision at that time to do something amazing. And what is even more extraordinary is they did three things. They cited the foundation in Canada. So we are a Canadian organization. Second is they they set out two areas of work and they defined it as broadly as possible. Hmm. One around financial inclusion for the poor and the other about education, education of young people so they can join a global workforce. And Hmm. and they left it at that. And the third, as you alluded to, what is for me almost unprecedented and extraordinary is they made the foundation completely independent Hmm. of the company. So our foundation has our own board of directors, a management team, policies, decisions about where to fund, what to fund, where to work are made by by the foundation, by the board and and the leadership. So that that in itself is extraordinary. And the assets, as you you mentioned earlier, uh, were were modest, (laughs) modest, but still significant (laughs) at that time. You know, just over $500 million was the initial gift. Yeah. And today, because of the company's extraordinary performance, the, the asset base is about $40 billion. Wow. And so when you talk about shaping a vision, yeah. so when I arrived on the scene, I was a fourth employee, we got to work right away <laughs> to start to put forward a plan. And I, I would say one of the most defining things of the foundation early on, I still remember that board meeting yep. in 2009 hmm. when we, the board made a couple of important decisions. One was that we would focus on a part of the world where hmm. we could go for the long haul, the long term, and that was going to be sub-Saharan Africa. There were a number of reasons why Rita and the other members of the board chose sub-Saharan Africa as the place to focus on. And a lot of it came down to the data at the time. Less than 24% of adults on the continent, when you look at just gross yep. macro indicators, had a savings account. When we looked at mm. education levels, under 40% of young people who should have been in high school were in high school. Yeah. Less than 7% who should be in university mm. were in university. So that was one aspect. We looked at, you know, levels, look at the UN and World Bank data around poverty. And and that was one piece of it. But I think what really grabbed us was when we looked at the massive demographic shifts Mm. that were under, you know, that, that the continent is experiencing. This is a continent that grows younger every single day. 
Yes. Uh, the vast majority of the people are under the age of 30. And in some countries, under the age of 25. Super exciting. And I think that probably at the time, you are one of the very, very few foundations that decided to make a huge bet on Africa. Is that all right? Yes, that's true. And that when we look forward to the future, you know, by the year 2050, Jean-Philippe, uh, yeah. one in four people on the world will be It'll African. Be that's yeah. right. And so in many ways, you think that's mm. the future. The future of the planet. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, and and when I w had the opportunity, of of course, over the years, but certainly mm. now in my new role to visit and mm. and the continent to travel, what we also saw was huge opportunity. Young people who are hard working, not mm. waiting for us, not working waiting for anybody, people with ideas who were reinventing, in um, what it means to deliver education, what it means to be a yeah. bank, deliver financial services. So we were excited by the youthfulness, but we were also excited by the ideas of the entrepreneurs that we saw emerging. And that, I think, was hmm. really what pushed us and said, yes, we're going to do this. Africa has changed a lot over the past 15 years. You're a much better place than myself to, to witness that in many different ways. In the same time, you had to adjust or even reshape through a massive transformation, Mastercard Foundation. So can you tell us what it takes to lead such a, also, I think, a big transformation? Because we often talk about corporate transformation, Microsoft did its own transformation, we keep doing it. But I know it can be even harder <laughs> to maneuver large philanthropic organizations because you have so many passions of stakeholders around the table, right? Yeah. To make a big change. True. So tell us more about both the context and the why and how you made this transformation for the future of our Mastercard Foundation. So when we first began, when we first began, we, uh, we were working largely out of Toronto and traveling. And we worked through many different organizations which we supported and worked and partnered with who were implementing financial inclusion programs or education programs uh, in, in, in many different countries. Mm -hmm. And so at the 10-year mark, uh, when the outreach, the total out cumulative outreach was, I think, about 23 million people, mm. largely through digital finance and so forth. Yeah. We s took a moment and said, what have we achieved? And what were the opportunities we missed? What have we learned? And if we could do one thing in that next decade, what would it be? Mm. And, you know, I thought I would have to lock up people for five days in a retreat, yeah. etc. Mm. It's interesting. In five minutes, with a few of my leaders, everyone got a little post-it note, and we wrote the same thing in different words. Youth employment, young mm. people, economic opportunity for young people in Africa. Mm. And so in order to do that, we mm. asked us, and so here we now had a strategy. Yep. And we said, what would it take to actually execute? Can we do this from Toronto? Mm. Or do, is something fundamentally more important here at stake. Yeah. So we, we set out some principles and we said that, you know, when we do this work, we want to make sure that at least, at least 75% of our partners are African mm. organizations. That's, a, That's 70% of this 30 million goal of young people yes. that we've set are young women. Mm. That we want to be vested in the success of these mm. countries in their economic transformation. And the only way to do that is to be there. Your leadership team, and many of your people are actually working out of Africa. 
right? Yes. Um, including, I would including say yourself, including, including yourself. myself. So I moved, <laughs> I moved as well because I yes. thought it was the best thing to do and the right thing to do to, to be based there, to be close to this work. So my entire senior management team are from the continent. Yep. They are located in different parts of the continent. Yep. And we have a tremendous team here in Toronto mm. as well who support the entire enterprise. And we have a, an amazing program in Canada, which is also focused on our Indigenous community yes. across the continent, across Canada. I love the way the Mastercard Foundation has radically transformed itself as an organization in order to better serve its purpose. So many large international organizations have their headquarters somewhere in the US or Europe and don't have enough feet on the ground in the reality. It's important to be present, to invest yourself in understanding so you can look beyond the headlines and understand a little better what's really going on. Being directly involved helps us prioritize resources to have the greatest impact and helps us make better decisions. So Rita, let's shift gears and maybe come back actually to where we left the topic of leadership with the marriage. But now we're going to talk also about, about your different perspective in leadership because you had a, an incredible career, both in the corporate world, as we said before, with BMS and Abbott. And of course, the bit with the UN and now with one of the largest financial organizations in the world. So I'd love to hear you reflecting on those leadership journeys and which leadership lessons have you learned in the corporate world that you believe serve you really well with your role at MasterCard Foundation and which leadership attributes do you believe that you had to unlearn maybe, <laughs> you're right, to be successful with your role today? So both the great you been bring from the corporate world with your role and the new habits and the new ways and behaviors you've been picking up, developing, which you think are uniquely fit for the philanthropic world? So it's a wonderful question. When I think about actually my experience, even though I was much, much younger in my career at the United Nations and then at these two large multinationals, which gave me extraordinary opportunity, and now at the foundation, I see some mm -hmm. uniting themes, yeah? Uh, all of these organizations yep. are mission-driven. Yep. They want to do good in the world. They want to improve lives. Their yep. methods are quite different. You know, one, maybe negotiation. The two companies, yes. it's around innovation. And the foundation, mm -hmm. it's around philanthropy. Yep. You know, that's our mode uh, of creating change. And in each case, I think there are lessons of leadership that are now mm -hmm. I, I appreciate so much more that are interchangeable, <laughs> and some work better than others, depending yeah. on, on, on the context. So one is when I think about what was helpful coming to the foundation from the corporation, yeah. particularly because the foundation was a startup. <laughs> you know, we were just building this organization. So the ability yeah. to have a reference point on setting metrics, <laughs> yeah. work plans, deliverables, creating a line of sight yeah. into milestones and how it is just a, a, yes. a discipline which yeah. was very, very helpful. Business processes uh, which needed to be in place. I think what I have mm. learned more works better in this context, but I, I, yeah. I would like to yeah. think it's a universal lesson. It mm. is that listening, it is about imbuing, even when you have to have difficult, challenging yes. 
conversations. And in our case, sometimes oh, yeah. it's saying no to an organization that just, we're not going to be able to, to do something yeah. together. Yeah, it is to be able to do that mm. with kindness and to do that with respect. Yes. Not patronize, but to actually put on the table yes. why. Why, why, what is the circumstance? What are the issues? And then to be respectful because in many ways they need to yes. know so that they can move on or they need to know so that they can apply their efforts elsewhere. That, that's mm. something really, really important. And I would actually more than agree with you, Rita, that saying no is respect and, and, and always keep humility for sure. I believe is something that mm -hmm. would serve, serve well any leaders of large business organizations as well. Absolutely. Something I've, I've got passionate about for a number of years now, working also in entrepreneurialization, is the so-called theory of change, right? Which you know mm. well, which is, okay, <laughs> given what the unique cause I want to focus on in my foundation or association, whatever it is, what is the theory of change we have? in terms of transforming that young African child to someone later on in his or her life. So I'd love to ask you that question, given the last 15 years, I think, roughly of your life spent in Africa with that incredible perspective about enabling, empowering youth employment and more on what will become actually the, the youth continent of the world. What is the theory of change that gets you excited, that you see in action today? <laughs> with all the investment, initiative you've been driving that make you proud, that make you really also excited about doing more of that or changing maybe the course of what you do? I hope what I'm going to say is not just only for Africa, but it, it certainly has been my experience in Africa. But I hope it's also universal. What I've seen is that when presented with opportunity, young people, especially young women, young girls, thrive. They seize that opportunity. And whether that opportunity is a chance to go to secondary school, hmm. whether that opportunity is a tool or a, a, some means of finance to start a business, yeah. people thrive. And they don't just stop there. Hmm. That is a stepping stone which shifts the trajectory of what is possible in their lives. And that always, always gives me hope. I mean, when we at the foundation, I think about impact as well. Yes, at the unit level, it is about us as individuals um, mm. and, and trying to find ways that we can affect change for millions of young people. Mm. It also takes organizations, and whether it's your foundation, Jean-Philippe or others, mm. institutions, which are on the same path. And part of our foundation's work is to partner with African institutions yes. to enable, who, who are also driven by passionate leaders who want to yeah. do good in the world, yeah. to enable them to expand their work, to uh, achieve a level of stability and resilience and, and scope. And then ultimately, when I think about what, what is that, Theory. I don't know if there's ever one theory, uh, and I don't <laughs> yeah. ever want to be beholden to theories. Yeah. But I do come back in the profound belief in human agency. 
Hmm. That uh, as an organization, and certainly as a foundation, we're not here to to change somebody or yeah. change an institution, but we're really here to enable that change. Every day, every day, when we listen, when we understand more about challenges or opportunities, I'm humbled. I'm humbled. And it is good to keep that close, that humility close, because it, it's an incredible reminder that we do not have answers. We are not the ones who are defining in any way the future of so many millions of talented young people. They are defining their future. Yeah, define the future. Well, that's uh, that's that's very powerful and and almost finishing, Norita, on this development, of course, on the profound sense of mission. You're infusing this organization. One day, in many years, you'll pass the baton of the Master Cup Foundation. What is it that you love to to see that has would have happened? as you pass the baton, what will make you the most proud of, the most, you know, the most joyful about? <laughs> I, I, of course, you know, we want to see change and results mm. in, 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 in lives of millions of, of young people and in, in strengths of organizations we work with. But I would say the thing that is closest and dearest to me is the culture and the mm. values of the foundation that any leader and all leaders, you know, and I, I'm so blessed that we work with so many wonderful people at, at this organization, that the most important thing are that these values persist. persist. They endure. And that each coming year, each coming decade, values are not static in of themselves. Mm -hmm. Might be the same values, but they regenerate mm -hmm. and they refresh an organization, and they refresh our purpose of how we know we're doing good. So my greatest hope would be is that this organization that I've been privileged to work for and serve continues on that mm. same path with the same set of values. And that to me is clearly the foundation of any lasting organization, successful organization. You said it so well, Rita. The mission in action and the values in the day-to-day -day life of organization to the people who've been iterating those values and showing that every single day of their lives. So as I was preparing this uh, episode, uh, Rita, uh, I was reminded of a book I was reading over the summer. My, you know, many people have got a lot to catch up during the summer in terms of reading, which I love to do along the year, but particularly the summer. And one beautiful book I read is The Manifesto for Moral Evolution from Jacqueline Novogratz who is the CEO and founder of the Venture Capital Acumen. And she said, the job of the moral leader, which is the job of all of us, is to learn to tell the stories that matter, stories that unite and inspire, reinforcing our individual and collective potential, and paint a picture of the future that we can build and inhabit together. The narratives we choose to tell ourselves and others can be extremely consequential, steering us towards roads of despair or pathways to freedom. The choice 
is ours to make. So, Rita, what is the choice you've made for the years to come in, in a sense of what is the story you'd like to share with our listeners so that we can all have a positive impact in the world? I think that's a very powerful book uh, and, and it's, a, it's extremely inspiring, actually, what you've just said. I'd love to share with the listeners, every, everyone, to, to know that you have a, a story that has brought you to this place, wherever you might be, whatever you might be doing, and that it's in your hands to continue to curate and shape your story and enrich that story by reaching out to others, by thinking about what you have to offer. I think there is no greater purpose in life than service. And so, and that service doesn't have to be in an official capacity as it is in how we live our lives. And so I, I would love to think that as you know, I carry forward as, as many people as you do, that we we think about what we've been blessed with, what we've learned, what we've acquired in terms of skills, and to think about how that continues to multiply. Multiply not just in the work that we do, but also in the lives of others. And, uh, and that's infinitely possible, whether you're a parent, a teacher, a friend, a big auntie, it's possible. It was such a real honor and privilege to have Rita on a podcast. I got a real sense of that unconditional love for all those lives she's touched and that she keeps touching, and which is an essential part of her day-to-day -day mission in life. For Rita, the whole reason the MasterCard Foundation exists is to work respectfully with organizations and individuals on their journey, and at the same time, help to close the gap. She's driven by the belief that people are masters of their destiny and that organizations and foundations are not here to change someone or an institution, but to enable that change. Success, as she defines it, requires a deep level of humility. And that's something we should all keep front of mind. Something else that resonates is the importance that Rita puts on service. I honestly believe there's no greater purpose in life than service. And it doesn't need to be in a formal role. We can all make the choice to make a positive impact. Think about your skills, your abilities, and where you can bring them all together to change the world. You've been listening to Positive Leadership Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends and leave us a comment or rating. There are 60 episodes of the podcast now available to listen, inspiring conversations with leaders from all over the world and through very different works of life, from philanthropists to CEOs, psychologists and coaches and more. Check them out. And if you'd like more practical tips on how to drive personal growth, leadership excellence and positive change, head over to my LinkedIn page and subscribe to my monthly newsletter, Positive Leadership and You. I'm Jean-Philippe Courtois. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.